morning, our Bible reading this morning is from Acts chapter 19, verses 1 to 20. If you can find that in your Bibles or it's on the leaflet. While Apollos was at Corinth, Paul took the road through the interior and arrived at Ephesus. There he found some disciples and asked them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? They answered, no, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. So Paul asked, then what baptism did you receive? John's baptism, they replied. Paul said, John's baptism was a a baptism of repentance. He told the people to believe in the one coming after him, that is, in Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. When Paul placed his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they spoke in tongues and prophesied. There were about 12 men in all. Paul entered the synagogue and spoke boldly there for three months, arguing persuasively about the kingdom of God. But some of them became obstinate. They refused to believe and publicly maligned the way. So Paul left them. He took the disciples with him and had discussions daily in the lecture hall of Tyrannus. This went on for two years so that all the Jews and Greeks who lived in the province of Asia heard the word of the Lord. God did extraordinary miracles through Paul so that even handkerchiefs and aprons that had touched him were taken to the sick and their illnesses were cured and the evil spirits left them. Some Jews who went around driving out evil spirits tried to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who were demon-possessed. They would say, in the name of the Jesus whom Paul preaches, I command you to come out. Seven sons of Seva, a Jewish chief priest, were doing this. One day the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know and Paul I know about, but who are you? Then the man who had the evil spirit jumped on them and overpowered them all. He gave them such a beating that they ran out of the house naked and bleeding. When this became known to the Jews and Greeks living in Ephesus, they were all seized with fear and the name of the Lord Jesus was held in high honour. Many of those who believed now came and openly confessed what they had done. A number who had had practiced sorcery brought their scrolls together and burned them publicly. When they calculated the value of the scrolls, the total came to 50,000 drachmas. In this way, the word of the Lord spread widely and grew in power. Well, thank you. Thank you so much. Rachel, let's pray. Our Father, uh, as we come and... Uh, just immerse ourselves in this amazing chapter in your, in your word. We pray that you'd speak to our lives, speak to our context, help us to understand the message of the Holy Spirit uh, written for us and, and to be proclaimed. And please turn our lives around. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so Paul's left Corinth last week. He returned to home base at Jerusalem and Antioch, uh, where the church was, and he's now starting his third missionary journey. He's making a beeline straight across, heading west towards Ephesus. And at Ephesus, we see the different 
faces of spiritual power. There's power to speak in tongues and to prophesy. There's power to perform miracles. There's demonic power. There's demonic speech. There's demonic strength. There's the personal guidance by the Spirit of God. There's power over sin. There's masses of people converted. There's the power to see a whole city change. The thread that runs right through this chapter, chapter 19, we only read half of it, but we'll be covering the whole lot. The thread that runs right through the whole lot is spiritual power. Okay, that's Ephesus, what about Adelaide? If we could be given spiritual power, what face of that power would we most want to see? Would it be outward signs of the Holy Spirit? Would it be miracles of healing? Would it be mass conversions? Would it be the power to persevere under pressure? Would it be uh, the power to testify? to Jesus boldly. What face of spiritual power do we most need? Think about this. Six years after Paul left Ephesus, Paul would write back and pray, Ephesians chapter one, that the eyes of their hearts would be enlightened so that they would know God's incomparably great power at work in us who believe. The same power, he says, which raised Jesus from the dead is at work in every believer. It's just you don't realize it. Paul prays that you'd realize it. What is this power? Well, let me give you some background. Magic was a thing in the ancient world. Uh, We don't realize it. It's not really a big thing in our world, but it was back then. So spells, scrolls, sorcery, witchcraft, it was rampant. If you wanted to be successful, if you wanted something bad to happen to someone else, what you'd do is you'd go to the marketplace and you'd buy a spell. Or you'd see a sorcerer who would invoke the name of some demon or god on your behalf. And here's the thing, Ephesus was the center of all of this in the ancient world. Ephesus was a a city that was obsessed with magic and with fear and with power. Now, how do we think about magic? I used to think it was all just sort of superstition nonsense because I know God is the only God, right? Okay. But there are such things as demons who stand behind other so-called gods. And the Bible is very clear about acknowledging the reality of the spiritual realm. And in fact, it's impossible to explain what happens in this chapter without acknowledging the spiritual realm. So when Paul comes into Ephesus, Paul the apostle of Jesus proclaiming the supremacy of Jesus, he says Jesus Christ is the Lord, then there's an inevitable clash of spiritual forces, right? So no wonder that when Paul writes to the Ephesian Christians, he'll say, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. So the first thing to realize about Ephesus is that it is the magic capital of the ancient world. The second thing to realize about Ephesus is that it boasted the largest building in the ancient world, in fact, one of the seven wonders of the world, the temple to the pagan god Artemis, or Diana. It's in ruins today, down in the bottom, but at the time it was colossal. 
And the thing to know about Artemis is that she wasn't your average Greek god or goddess. In the first century, you know, Zeus and the other old Greek gods, they were old hat. But Artemis was supreme. Not only was she a fertility goddess, controlling things like crops and the weather and babies getting conceived, she was also believed to be the ultimate goddess because she could control fate. She could change the destiny of your life and other people's lives, which meant, of course, she could veto other spells or curses made either for you or against you in the name of other gods or demons. Now, more still, Artemis was thought to have the keys to the underworld, controlling demons which might be otherwise against you. So in terms of pagan gods or goddesses, Artemis was thought to be supreme. And yet now, here comes Paul, the apostle, who proclaims Jesus Christ as Lord. He proclaims Jesus as supreme. And therefore, you can see we are in for a clash. But the thing to realize is it's not as if it's an equal contest. You know, here's Artemis in the corner weighing in at 300 pounds, and here is the Apostle Paul in the blue corner weighing in at another 300 pounds. When Paul gets to Ephesus, we see three quick snapshots of the power of Jesus. The first snapshot is of the transforming power of the Lord's name, verses one to seven. When Paul arrives in Ephesus, he meets some disciples, whom we realize are not yet Christians because they haven't yet placed their trust in the name of Jesus. They are disciples of John the Baptist. Paul discovers they haven't yet received the Holy Spirit who comes upon people when they trust in Jesus, and Paul soon puts them straight. He reminds them of what John said, that John spoke of of the need to believe in the one who was coming after him. And of course, they'd have already known that, but what they didn't know was the name of that one. They didn't know who that one was, and so Paul tells them, it is Jesus. And so Paul now baptizes them into the name of the Lord Jesus, and then the Holy Spirit comes upon them, and they prophesy. Now, It's not that they were already Christians and needed a second experience of the Holy Spirit. We know that because when Paul asks them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? What we see is that the normal Christian experience is to receive the Holy Spirit at the moment you believe in Jesus. And it's not that they needed an outward sign of the Holy Spirit in order to be saved. Uh, People often become Christians in the book of Acts without any mention at all of people speaking in tongues. So why does this happen here? Because this is a new group of people who become believers. And in the book of Acts, whenever a new type of people become converted, there would have been skeptics, Jewish kind of skeptics who would have, or Christian people who've come out of Judaism who would have wondered, had God really accepted them, this new group of people? And so in this case, tongues are given to silence the tongues of potential skeptics, right? The same happens in chapter eight when the Samaritans first get converted, the half-caste Jews. And then the same happens in chapter 10 when the first God-fearing a Gentile, Cornelius, gets converted. And now it happens when these disciples of John get converted. 
kind of mini Pentecost. Tongues are given to silence the tongues of any potential skeptics who, who doubt that they're truly saved. It's as if to say, these disciples of John are now truly accepted by God because they have received the Holy Spirit through trusting in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. The main thing that comes out in this story is the transforming power of Jesus' name. Because it's through faith in his name that they and, and you or I become reborn by God and receive his spirit. The spirit of God transforms us by making us alive to God through faith in Christ. That is the first snapshot, the transforming power of the Lord's name. The second snapshot is of the spreading power of the Lord's word. Verses eight to 10 summarize two years of Paul's ministry. He begins as usual in the synagogue. He persuasively argues about the kingdom of God. He speaks boldly like this for three months until he is wholeheartedly rejected. The Jews there become obstinate, they harden their hearts, they refuse to believe, and then they publicly malign the way. And so just like in Corinth, what Paul does is he doesn't give up on the city, he finds another public venue, this time a lecture hall, which he probably rents out during the lunchtime break, and he conducts his daily ministry from there for two years solid. And the impact I want you to see is immense. We're told all the Jews and Greeks, in other words, everyone, who lived in the province of Asia, that's like, you know, the state of South Australia, heard the word of the Lord. All the people, everyone in the whole province knew about Paul. Everyone had come to hear him speak about Jesus at one point or another. Everyone had heard the word of the Lord. It's astounding when you think about it. Now, clearly, Luke would have had stories to tell, he could have expanded on this, but all he gives us is a snapshot to highlight the spreading power of the word of the Lord. The third snapshot is in verses 11 to 12, where we see the extraordinary power of the Lord's apostle. God did miracles, he does extraordinary miracles through Paul, so that even the handkerchiefs and aprons that Paul had touched were taken to their sick and their illnesses were cured and the evil spirits left them. It's kind of reverse COVID, right? <laughs> okay, it's got healing power. I wanna touch that, you know? It's not magic. There are no spells. There's no invoking the name of demons, no secrecy. But in a city that's riddled with magic, it's as close as you get. Now, when I read this, having read through the book of Acts, I've, I'm asking, why hasn't this happened before? Why didn't this level of miracle working happen in Corinth or Philippi or Thessalonica? I mean, it's not as if Paul's changed. It's not as if the message has changed. It's not as if Jesus, whom he's proclaiming, has become more powerful all of a sudden. Why does this happen here? And the answer is that God is accommodating the proclamation of his word to the city, to Ephesus. The message is the same, Jesus is Lord, but this is a way in Ephesus that Jesus' lordship will be heard and understood. God accommodates himself to the city to speak in a language which they will get. When people are cured from illnesses, what's the message? That 
Those magic scrolls for healings, they are, they are powerless. When evil spirits get cast out, that, then the demonic powers behind the spells, well, they're seen to be under Jesus' lordship. So what we're given here very quickly is three snapshots of the lordship of Jesus Christ in Ephesus. There's the transforming power of the Lord's name to bring true spiritual life through the Holy Spirit. There's the spreading power of the Lord's word right throughout the Roman province of Asia. And thirdly, there's the extraordinary power of the Lord's apostle. And when you put all those snapshots together, they powerfully show that when Jesus steps into the ring with magic or demons or Artemis, one of them, hands down, is more powerful than the rest. And so in the rest of the chapter, Jesus now steps into the ring. Not Paul, it's Jesus, the, the ascended, resurrected and ascended Jesus who steps into the ring. Two rounds. First round, confronting demons and sorcery. Second round with Artemis herself. Both rounds highlight the supreme power of Jesus' name. Ding, ding, okay, into the ring for the first round steps the Jewish exorcists. Now, they've seen the power that Jesus' name brings, so they try to use it against evil spirits. In the name of Jesus, whom Paul preaches, I command you to come out. They're trying to use Jesus' name as if it were magic. But they have no relationship with him. They don't know Jesus. They're not saved by God. They haven't believed the gospel. Instead, they just want to tap into his power like his name is a magic spell but you can't do that. And so one day the evil spirit answers them. That would have been freaky, right? <laughs> Jesus, I know, and I know about Paul, but who are you? Does this happen today? I'll tell you a story. I was, a few years ago, I was preaching at 5 p.m. at Trinity City. I was preaching on the Lordship of Jesus. And there was a lady who had come in who'd sit in the front row, no one had ever met her before, and when I started proclaiming Jesus' lordship, she spoke with this deep, very masculine voice that no lady could ever do. And then she started headbutting the pew in front. Now, I think the Lord protected me. I was oblivious to this. I just kept going, proclaiming Jesus' lordship. I didn't know this. I only heard about it afterwards. All the people around her are praying. They're thinking something is going on. She gets right through to the end of the sermon and she just storms out and a few of our people followed her to make sure she didn't throw herself under a tram or something like that. Um, never seen her again. Okay. Anyway, the demons now speak. Jesus I know and know about Paul, but who are you? And the man with the spirit jumps them and it sends them off naked and bleeding far out. All right, the demons know the name of Jesus, but Jesus' name can't be manipulated like that, like that of a pretend God. The name of Jesus is in a category altogether different. Why? Because Jesus' lordship is not pretend, it's real. His name is revered by the demons. And well, news of this, of course, quickly spreads around Ephesus, and suddenly there's a new respect for the name of Jesus. Across the city, Jews and Gentiles are seized with fear, and they hold the name of the Lord Jesus in high honor. And then many Christians start taking Jesus' lordship seriously. Verse 18, have a look. Many of those who believed now came and openly confessed their evil deeds. 
they realized they couldn't claim Jesus' name as well as keep walking in sin. Did you hear that? They realized they can't keep claiming Jesus' name and keep walking in sin. And that might be a message for you. So what happens is there's this public confession by Christians who turn from their evil deeds. And then thirdly, Christians who are having a bet each way with Jesus and sorcery, they realize sorcery is totally incompatible with being a Christian. And so what they do, they bring their scrolls, their magic scrolls, and they burn them publicly. And we're told the value of the scrolls was 50,000 drachmas. A drachma is one day's wages. There's a burning of the scrolls in today's terms worth more than $17 million. That's a very expensive bonfire. What a massive response. But of course, there's no choice, is there? I mean, if Jesus is Lord, what are you gonna do? What are you gonna do with your cupboard full of old spells? Are you gonna give them away to someone more needy? You're gonna enslave someone else instead of freeing them through the Lordship of Jesus, when that's now palpably clear? If Jesus is Lord, they have to be destroyed so that Jesus can be Lord of other people in the city as well. And that is well worth any financial cost, considering the alternative cost of people being enslaved to demons. So there's no choice, you've got to burn them, right? And then lastly, we read that in this way, the word of the Lord spread widely and grew in power. Contrast the power of the magic scrolls, they're ash versus the power of the word of God over the demonic realm, over sorcery and magic. So there's a clear winner to round one. Ding, ding, okay, Jesus Christ triumphs over demons and sorcery. But that's just been the warm-up round. Because in the Ephesian mind, greater than the demons or sorcery is their great goddess Artemis of the Ephesians. In their mind, Artemis is supreme. The temple dominates the city. It's the biggest building in the ancient world. To them, her name is greater than any other name. And so now comes second clash, round two. Ding, ding, ding. Okay, into the ring, fighting for Artemis, steps Demetrius the silversmith. We didn't read this bit, but it's in Acts 19. Have a look on your devices or in your Bibles. Okay, he's the union rep for all of Artemis's silversmiths. And now their lives as silversmiths, are un- livelihoods are under attack because so many people have turned to Jesus in the city that they have stopped buying Artemis idols. Now you realize the power of the word of God, it is so powerful it's changed the economy of the city. And one of the major industries is now under threat So Demetrius calls a union meeting and with his boxing gloves on, as we could guess, he aims his first punch at Jesus' spokesman, Paul. And you can imagine there in the union meeting the kind of chest thumping. Men, you know we receive a good income from this business, yeah. And you see and hear how this fellow Paul has convinced and led astray large numbers of people here in Ephesus and practically the whole province of Asia. Mm. He says that man-made gods are no gods at all. Boo! Of course, they make them. Ironic. All right. 
There is danger that not only our trade will lose its good name, but also invoke religion, okay, when you need a political cause. Also that the temple of our great goddess Artemis will be discredited and the goddess herself, who is worshiped throughout the province of Asia and the world, will be robbed of her divine majesty. Boo, boo, Paul. Of course, when they hear this, they're furious. They begin shouting, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. All right, very soon, the whole city, we're told, verse 29, is in uproar. Now, you can see how he was able to whip up a crowd. At this point, things escalate. The Christians urge Paul to go into hiding against his wishes. Paul's traveling companions are seized and dragged into the theater. Huge place, you can visit there. It's a capacity of 25,000 people. Paul wants to come out before the crowd, but his disciples won't let him. And the city officials who've become Christians quickly send him a text. They say, don't go in, don't go in. All right, there's complete confusion. Some people are shouting one thing, some another. Most people don't even know why they're there. One man named Alexander gets pushed to the front to try and clarify to everyone why, everyone, why, why they're there. But as soon as they realize he's a Jew, the mob think, He's anti-Artemis. They shout him down with the chant, great is Artemis of the Ephesians for two hours, right? So things are now so out of control that the city clerk is wheeled in as the adjudicator and he trots out the Ephesian line. I can't help but thinking of Sir Humphrey Appleby from that old series, Yes, Minister. Citizens of Ephesus, it's undeniable to all the world that Ephesus is the guardian of, the Artemis, of Artemis's temple and of her image, which probably, as a side, was uh, a meteorite which fell from the sky. That because this is undeniable, good sense and modicum should prevail. These people have not physically attacked the temple or blasphemed the goddess. And if Demetrius has a, now a legal issue with Paul, he should take it to the courts. Otherwise, they themselves are in danger of being charged for making a riot for no valid reason. Don't you love civil servants, right? So he sends everyone home. At that, and then that's the end of round two. So who's the winner? Demetrius, he gets put in place, but the city clerk has reaffirmed that Artemis is supreme. It's a bit of an anticlimax, isn't it? I mean, why couldn't it have been a different finish? Something a bit more dramatic. You know, like in 1 Kings, when Elijah takes on the prophets of Baal, you know, and God answers with fire down from heaven. Why couldn't Jesus just send fire or lightning to explode Artemis's temple like that? There's no such blast. The round ends in confusion. Now, of course, many people are converted. They know Jesus' name is supreme, but the mob, actually, by the way, the word is church, <laughs> uh, the, the gathering, the assembly, the, the church, um, with Demetrius and the city clerk, say that Artemis' name is supreme. And that's where it's left. It's sort of an unsatisfying ending, but isn't that the way that it is for us now? Isn't that exactly the way? Because now, before the day, of course, when Jesus appears in blazing fire and he settles everyone's doubts once and for all, until then, there's confusion, as there can be in people's hearts. In Ephesus, you had Christians hedging their bets, I'll believe in Jesus, I'll trust in sorcery. I'll believe in Jesus, I'll continue in sin. 
a sort of form of godliness, but denying the power of Jesus as Lord. And wherever it's not clear to everyone that Jesus is Lord, it's so easy for that to be the norm, isn't it? I'll say Jesus is Lord, but I'll keep playing secretly with that sin. I indulge. I'll say Jesus is Lord, but I'm the one really in control of my future and I'll trust more in my shrewdness than in Jesus. Well, we've seen lots of faces of spiritual power, but truly what demonstration of spiritual power do we need? I want you to think with me that when Paul, six years later, writes back to the Ephesian church, and when he prays that he would, that they would know God's incomparably great power at work in them, in them who believe, what power is he talking about? Well, in Ephesians 3, he explains. He says, I pray that out of the Father's glorious riches, oh, sorry, um, I don't think that's the right quote, but anyway, he may, oh, no, keep it on, keep it on, sorry, I beg your pardon. He may strengthen you with power through your Holy Spirit in your inner being, that's a bit above those verses, This power comes through the Spirit of God. Power for what? Here we are, verse 17. So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Again, to what end? He says, I pray that you, here we go, being rooted and established in love may have power together with all the saints to grasp how how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ and to know that love that surpasses knowledge, to know it deeply in your inner being, you see? So what Paul prays for, for this church, in this city, that's dominated with power, he prays that they would have power through the Holy Spirit to do two things, that through faith in Jesus, they would understand that Jesus is not just with you, but he's in you, dwelling in you, Do you believe that? Jesus, Jesus, who is at the Father's side, through his spirit, he is dwelling in you as your Lord, completely in charge of your life, and as the one who has totally saved you. He wants them to have power to know that And then also that the one who dwells in you loves you, you. And Paul wants you to grasp the limitless dimensions of that love, the the height, the width, the the depth, the the length, the love that knows no limits. It, It surpasses knowledge, no the depth of that love which surpasses knowledge. That his love deeply covers you, that he is for you, not against you. He doesn't just tolerate you, right? He's not burning with anger to, you know, wake to flick you into outer space or something. He really loves you. Paul prays that you would have power, God would strengthen you with power in your inner being to grasp this. That he, Jesus, dwells in you and that he loves you. 
You know, when, you, when that happens, that turns your life around. You become secure. You're able to cope. You're able to live for him. And we need that. Why do we need it? Because we're in a battle. All right, now Paul wrote that letter six years after he leaves, eight years after writing that prayer in that letter, Paul will write to the leader of the Ephesian church, Timothy, and he'll say that people are now lovers of all the wrong things. It's small print, but they will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boastful, proud, abusive, disobedient to their parents. Pause. Ungrateful, unholy, without love. Unforgiving, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not lovers of the good. Treacherous, rash, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. You see, they're loving all the wrong things. And get this, having a form of godliness but denying its power. Well, the sobering slap that comes in that last phrase is that he's talking about people in church having a form of godliness but denying its power. He writes this about the Ephesian church. Denying the power of loving God instead of everything else the world loves. That's the power we need, to love God instead of all the other competing loves. Power to love God. Guess what, about 20 years after Paul made that prediction, Jesus himself dictated a letter through his servant John to the church in Ephesus, Revelation chapter two. He says, guess what, you've done good things, well done, but you have forsaken your first love. Your love for me. And he says, if you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. You will stop being an effective witness for me. You will be unable to shine. You know, in 2022, our church's vision is shining together. Well, to do this, we have to have spiritual power to love Jesus first. Our first love. It's sobering that even though the Ephesian church started so powerfully, and even though they had three years of ministry from the great apostle Paul, no other church had that. And then even though they had Timothy leading that church, the light of that church stopped shining. And so it could happen to us. What sort of power do we need? What sort of spiritual power? We need spiritual power to keep shining, don't we? We need the power for Christ to dwell in our hearts through faith. We need power to grasp deeply in our inner being the extent of Christ's love for us. That's transforming to you. We need power to love God instead of other loves. We need 
the spiritual power to love and to keep on loving Jesus Christ first. That is the face of spiritual power we really need. I think we need to pray, don't we? Come on up, Beck, yeah. I'll let Beck lead us. Thanks, Beck.